The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash earnings right now. netsuite.com slash earnings. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We reassembled our panel. Jeannie Shanzano is here, Bloomberg Politics contributor, along with John Sidalides, partner at Trilogy Advisors. Uh, Jeannie, what's your thought on this specific number? Because it does inform what you were just talking about. Joe Biden, uh, uh, Donald Trump, rather, doesn't think he should be on the debate stage with a bunch of other candidates because, well, basically, he's still the president. And if 51 percent of his supporters in Iowa feel that way, then he's probably doing the right thing here politically. That's right. And that's why, you know, I think he and his team decided that he didn't make sense for him to go. We do know that they weighed, you know, the pros and cons. And simply the reality is this. He believes he won. Many of the supporters do, as that poll shows. And if he was to show up, the danger to him would be greater than not showing up, because with a poll margin this big, even if somebody does have a really good showing on Wednesday night, it's unlikely they're going to close this kind of polling gap, whether it's the state polls like Iowa and New Hampshire or the national polls. And if mm. they do, he's got plans to turn himself in Thursday and sort of take the oxygen out of any sort of, uh, you know, running room they get. So they don't feel like there's much of a loss from him skipping this. We know he always intended to skip the second Republican debate because of the location. And we uh, he's indicated he may not attend any of them. So <laughs> this is, you know, he's running as if he is president and his supporters believe many of his supporters believe he should be well let's think about everybody else on that stage uh, for a moment john because if 51 percent of the people watching the people you're trying to win over in iowa believe that donald trump is actually the president or won Mm -hmm. uh somehow the election in 2020 that's gonna that's gonna dictate your posture your messaging that night because you can't disagree with them and win them over can you it's going to be a very great challenge for many of the Republican candidates. I expect Brett Baer and Martha McCallum to ask that type of a question. Yeah. And you may even have a Chris Christie who prides himself on being the anti-Trump. It's mm-hmm. really the only reason he's in this campaign to begin with. He has no real shot at winning the primary, and he's stuck at 3%. But he'll probably take on some of the other Republicans and try to take them down a few notches and defy them to defend Trump in terms of his perspective on whether or not he won or lost. To the Iowa numbers, though, Joe, I wouldn't be surprised if you see similar, if not greater, numbers in other states among GOP voters. So let's not be surprised that... The majority of Republicans believe that Donald Trump either had the election stolen from him or that it was a rigged election. Mm. So I think that's going to be a firmament in Republican primaries in the weeks ahead. Let me also offer this thought. 
Um, a, my guess is that Trump may decide he's not going to waste his time with Anissa Hutchinson or a Francis Suarez or other 1% opponents mm-hmm. taking shots at him. But maybe by the third or fourth debate, if there were three, four or five candidates standing, he may decide to knock them out. At, at, at that time. Yeah. Uh, and one more thing, if I might. Just the way Donald Trump feels that his numbers are so strong, he doesn't need to take all of these hits from all of these lesser candidates. Mm-hmm. Look at Joe Biden. I mean, Joe Biden is, I think he's got the support of 70% of Democratic voters, but Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is polling at around 12 to 14%, sort of Ron DeSantis territory. Mm. And Marianne Williamson is polling at around 6%, well above Chris Christie, who's on new shows across America. Isn't that right? And above most of the Republican candidates, and yet there's no calls for Biden to debate Kennedy and Williamson. So an interesting dynamic there between the two parties. Boy, and I don't think that's going to be happening anytime soon. Should an incumbent have to do such a thing, Jeannie? Um, You know, I am in favor of debates. And so I would love to see everybody uh, who has a shot debate. And I'd also love to see people who are low in the polls debate, because quite frankly, as voters, we can't decide who we want to support if we don't get to see them in action. So I am in favor of it, but it is not something we usually see with incumbents. And I would also just remind everybody that, you know, the reality for Trump is this. The more people in this race are better for Trump. And so he is going to want to keep all of these people in this race. He's even if you look at the Iowa caucus poll, you know, the persuadables are just over 50 percent, which we may say, oh, that's great. They're open to somebody besides Trump. But he has 27 percent of those people. So if you can't consolidate the never Trumpers, he's going to win even if he has a 30, 35 percent base. And he's probably got a little higher. So for him, the more people out there, the better. This all works to his advantage the way it is playing out at this point. We're spending time with our panel, Jeannie Shanzano and John Sidalides. I want to ask you about some of the messaging, the posturing that we're hearing now on this eve of the debate. And I love both of your reactions here. Ron DeSantis uh, is is upping the ante, it seems like, on a daily basis, edging closer to real attacks on Donald Trump, but also just the tough guy routine. Everybody's apparently out-toughing each other on this stage. Here he is in Iowa yesterday. When they try, if they try to bring the fentanyl across the southern border when I am president, we are gonna shoot them stone cold dead. All right. I guess that's a winning line. Uh, Is that really though, I mean, that's gonna be, what do you think, John? Is that a winning policy that we're gonna, I guess he was talking about Mexican drug cartels, but we'll just shoot people from across the river as they're coming in? I don't know what exactly he's Or is that just tough guy talk ahead of the debate? Well, but a lot of Republicans would like to hear tough guy talk about border security. It's one of the most important issues for Republican voters. They feel that the economy is failing, mm-hmm. that our cities are running rampant with criminal activity. Sure. We have uh, border They also insecurity. got a lot of promises like this, though, and no real policy. Correct. But it's also why Donald Trump, I think, just put out a Twitter message, or pardon me, a truth social. Yeah. Um, uh, Trump's first term, we destroyed ISIS. Trump's second term, we destroy the Mexican cartels. So it, it is going to resonate with a large number of voters. And again, you know, to the degree that candidates keep messaging simple and leave the details to later. Mm-hmm. But I think it is going to be a positive outcome, hopefully, from the debates tomorrow that we're not only looking at sort of the Thunderdome aspect of all of this, but, right. but there's actual policy debates. And to help Republican voters and, for that matter, Democrats and independents talk about the issues that really matter to everyday Americans mm-hmm. in ways that I think getting caught up in the polling and the horse race yes, sure. eludes us. Uh, absolutely. And I, I know you're, you're speaking truth there, 
Jeannie, I'll give you a chance with what we heard last night from Vivek Ramaswamy on CNN defending comments that he's made about some sort of conspiracy around 9-11, never mind January 6th. I mean, that's something. If you're going to bite that off, both of those in one sentence, here he is. Saudi Arabia, absolutely, their intelligence was involved in 9-11. And that's a difficult thing you're not supposed to say. The facts back that up. Separately, as it relates to January 6th, same story all over again. There were federal agents in the field. I think they've lied about how many there were. And we, the people, deserve the truth, okay, despite the, the layers of distortion that you, exist in the media to prevent us from getting it. Layers of distortion in the media. How about conspiracy on the debate stage, Jeannie? It's something that sells with this primary, uh, with this Republican primary voters. And and so he is really reflecting something that is out there. And, you know, you just listen to the difference between that and the P and what you played the clip from DeSantis. DeSantis can talk about shooting people. And, you know, the reality is DeSantis cannot find a message. It doesn't sound authentic when he tries this tough guy act. And when Vivek Ramaswamy does, people do listen. His poll numbers have been really important. Impressive. Mm-hmm. He is very good on the stump. And, you know, it may sound uh, crazy, some of these conspiracy theories, theories, but they do resonate with some of these voters. I only have a minute uh, left here, John, before a news update. Is it is it smart politics to be talking about, you know, black helicopters and tinfoil hats like this? Maybe you agree with what he said, but if we're talking about federal agents and, and 9-11 being an inside job, is is that serious? Well, that's not what I heard, Joe. No, uh, he did talk about what came out in the 9-11 Commission, but was on the surface and didn't go much deeper than that. But there is a sense that the Saudi kingdom and the royal family did enjoy certain benefits, including private jets, to mm-hmm. get their people out of the United States while we shut down the entire I aviation system. I should play more because he talks about how the federal agents on that plane and this was the yeah, much of this was. The- I, I, don't, I don't have the exact sentence and I want to be careful that yeah. we don't take things out of context. But I think that was where he was going with the 9-11 commission on January 6th. There were a large number of Republican voters who would like questions coming out of the House committee that's investigating what took place on January 6th to the degree that there may have been federal agents that have been obfuscated in a lot of the reports over the last three years. So to Jeannie's point, yes, many Republicans believe we don't have all the facts and the profound mistrust in national media by Republican voters is going to be an important issue for Republican candidates to address tonight and in mm-hmm. future debates. You better believe it. We're going to hear a lot about it. I have no doubt. Jeannie Shanzano is with us, of course, Bloomberg Politics contributor today. John Sidalides joins us well, partner at Trilogy Advisors. Uh, John, you've been watching this relationship unfold or maybe fall apart uh, for some time now, since before Joe Biden got into the White Mm -hmm. House. What do these excursions do for us as we're trying to keep high technology out of the hands of the Chinese, trying to limit investment in China? What's the point of the Commerce Secretary here to make everybody feel good or to create a new path forward? Let's talk about what's working first. And I think the Biden administration deserves credit for upping the Trump sanctions and export controls on advanced technologies such as the most advanced semiconductors, on artificial intelligence, on quantum computing. We're not going to help China try to take the dominant lead on these technologies that will be the most important of the 21st century global economy without 
stiff competition from our own American innovators and dynamic companies. Uh, I think it's going to be very important that Raimondo, Secretary Raimondo sends the message to Beijing that de-risking will continue, that we are going to protect uh, the import of military parts that are most essential for our national security. As I mentioned before, the frontier technologies that will dominate the economy in the years ahead. We're looking at uh, health products and pharmaceuticals that we learned during the COVID lockdowns we were dependent on China for, and also a number of the rare earth metals and elements that are so important for the products that sustain our way of life. But by the same token, can we continue to buy t-shirts and furniture and electronics from China? Sure. We want to continue to sell our agricultural products to help feed the Chinese people. Uh, So I think that level of interdependence can be sustained while we protect our national security and our economic well-being. I think the one thing that we have to be careful about, Joe, is that the president says diplomacy is a good thing, and by and large, it It is a good thing for its own sake, but we have to be careful to not be seen as supplicants, that we're always begging for meetings Mm -hmm. with Chinese leaders, and we don't seem to see any news coverage of Chinese leaders begging to meet their American counterparts. It seems to be a one-way street so far. We'll see what happens if President Biden and Chairman Xi meet in Mm -hmm. November, but maybe this is the preparation for what could be some type of a breakthrough, but I don't see it right now. That's the question, Jeannie. Is this the meeting that could lead to the summit or at least a conversation between the two presidents. You know, I I think we are all still hoping that there is a conversation, whether that occurs, uh, you know, in the U.S., in San Francisco, whether it occurs on the sidelines in New Delhi of the G20. Um, The reality is these high level um, visits that we keep seeing, and you just listed the ones that have occurred since June, um, they haven't yielded as much as some people would have hoped, although I am of the opinion that the more conversation, the better. So I I don't see a problem with that. But I think as we look just at our own domestic politics, the Biden administration is getting a lot of pressure from Congress, particularly the hawks in Congress who want to take a harder line. And they are kind Mm -hmm. of walking this tightrope and it's going to continue. And during an election year, it is going to be very, very hard for them to move against that pressure that they're hearing out of Washington and out of Congress and Republicans in particular. So it's something to be mindful of as we move forward towards Mm -hmm. the election. I'll tell you, in the last week or two, the most underreported story was this summit at Camp David. At least I would argue Joe Biden's bike ride that he took on vacation last week got more attention than this summit with Japan and South Korea at Camp David. And I wonder, obviously, this is with China in mind, John, the impact that this is having as Beijing now considers uh, canceling a three-way summit that it was planning with Japan and South Korea. Well, China only needs to look inwardly for the blame for all of this. I think this would have been a very difficult trilateral partnership to put together in, say, 2014, 2015. Japan and South Korea, however nervous they are about China's economic rise, did not feel as intimidated security-wise and militarily as they have over the last five to seven years. Does the administration deserve credit for bringing them together? Is, Is this meaningful? I think it's a very positive step, absolutely. And I think it reinforces the defense relationships that we've already had with Japan and with South Korea. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind, we don't need a formal NATO-type alliance in Asia, right? We already have 28,000 troops in South Korea, 50,000 troops in Japan. So our American forces are tripwires. Mm -hmm. If they're attacked because of any external attack on South Korea or Japan, Mm -hmm. we're going to war. Simple as that. But what you have for the first time is Japan and South Korea 
coordinating their defense, intelligence sharing, and the like, because of the historic enmity between these two peoples over the past century. Mm -hmm. So I think the Biden administration deserves credit for bringing them together and the three countries together, signaling to China and also to countries in Southeast Asia that there are alternatives to China's very belligerent, if not outright hostile behavior towards almost every one of its Asian neighbors over the last 10 years under Chairman Xi. It's really something, Jeannie. Getting back to where we started with Gina Raimondo, this is not going to be an easy meeting. She might actually have the hardest job of any cabinet officials gone over there, with with the exception of Anthony Blinken. She absolutely will. I think this is going to be very tough. She has a lot on her plate, and she is feeling pressures all around. Let's not forget, it wasn't that long ago that we heard Janet Yellen talk about the impact of the economic slowdown in China in the U.S. And to your point about the coverage of that meeting at Camp David, those (laughs) arguments are really difficult to make because they don't resonate resonate with Americans in particular, especially during an, a, an election year. And so all of this, these visits, as important as they are and, and these meetings, um, you know, the administration doesn't get the credit they deserve for them. And when they get the blame, when the economy slows down, they will feel that. Huh, boy. Jeannie Shanzano, John Sidalides, our panel today on Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington, wondering always why modern presidents don't use Camp Day David more often. It's one of the best assets they have. But I digressed. This is Bloomberg. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. The F-16s are apparently coming, though. This deal yeah. with the Netherlands now uh, that we learned about in just the past couple of days, but those won't be ready to fly for months. 
And so, boy, you start thinking about all of this and the conversations that we had months ago with Kelly Grieco, and you wonder exactly how this is all going to pan out. The senior fellow, Stimson Center's Reimaging U.S. Grand Strategy Program is with us in studio. Kelly Grieco, it's great to see you. Hi, Thanks for thank coming you for to having see us me. here in the Bureau. Absolutely. Uh, you didn't see the F-16s as being needed, not necessarily the most effective uh, uh, weapon in this fight. Fast forward a couple of months. Here we are. I'm assuming you still feel the same way because these lines haven't really budged in that period of time. No, and I think if we look at the counteroffensive and we're trying to diagnose the problem, it's easy to point to the lack of air power and the lack of F-16s yeah. as sort of, you know, an easy thing to blame. But when you actually look at what we know about the battle history, it seems to be more about the inability of the Ukrainians to have mastered combined arms warfare. Uh, and what I mean by that is in order to overcome all these defensive fortifications the Russians have, uh, you, what you need to be able to do is to combine artillery mm -hmm. with armor, with infantry, almost near simultaneously rather than sequentially. And that takes a lot to do that because, again, you're doing that under fire mm -hmm. and that kind of coordination. And what we've seen is that they're not really able to do that under fire, that it's a really big ask for a military to learn to do that mid-war. Okay, so it's an operational issue, not a specific weapons issue. Correct. I think that's exactly right. I think, you know, in the West, we love technology um, and we're always looking for sort of technological silver bullets. Mm -hmm. And we've seen, you know, throughout the war, people turn to these, you know, whether it was HIMARS or Western tanks or now, you know, this F-16 um, debate. And at the end of the day, it's actually technology can only get you so far. It's your ability to be able to use it and combine technologies in a way that is really allows you to overcome defensive power and be able to take territory. And at the end of the day, I'll also say armies take territory, not air forces. How about that? Washington Post reporting, uh, the end of last week, the U.S. intelligence community assessing Ukraine's counteroffensive will fail to reach the key southeastern city of Melitopol. Uh, a finding, should it prove to be correct, the Post writes, would mean Kiev will not fulfill its principal objective of severing's, uh, severing Russia's land bridge to Crimea. With that said, has the counteroffensive been lost? What's the decision that needs to be made here? Well, you know, I will just say that I think that as an objective was always very ambitious. Uh, and I think one of the things that has happened is that last fall, the Ukrainians conducted a counteroffensive and they were able to take back large swaths of territory. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I almost think it created sort of a false optimism because at that time, the Russian army was at its absolute weakest point. Um, and the Ukrainians, to their credit, really seized that moment of vulnerability and exploited it to the full. And what they're facing in this counteroffensive is just a completely different enemy, one that's dug in and hardened. And so the idea that they were going to be able to really punch through, break through the line and take large amounts of territory and get to that objective, I think, was always very ambitious. And so, um, you know, I hate to call it a failure um, mm -hmm. because in some sense it has allowed an opportunity for the Ukrainians, for the Western supporters as well, to maybe become a little bit more realistic yeah. about what the balance of power might look like on the You know what we were told, though, Kaylee, leading up to this, is that they're empty in jails. They don't even have, these aren't even real soldiers. There are a bunch of drunks mm -hmm. out there. This is an opportunity for Ukraine to take ground. We're, I mean, and you just wonder how credible a lot of those analysts were. Oh, totally. And and the, the question that then follows is if expectations were too high for this specific counteroffensive, what about expectation at all for Ukraine to be able to win this war? I mean, what endgame realistically are we looking at here if they can't find success 
in this? Well, I think, again, we have to ask, what does it mean by win? Uh, because in some sense, you could say that they've already won in one way because they denied Russia its main objective in this sure. war which was to topple the government um, and capture Kiev. And that's more than a moral victory. That's real. That's real. Yeah. And, you know, most people didn't think they stood a chance, um, you know, at the start of the war. They've also managed to take back a lot of territory uh, from the Russians. Those are real accomplishments. I think what we're seeing is most wars don't end like World War II, mm-hmm. where one side is completely victorious on the battlefield and the other's, you know, unconditional surrender. What we're seeing is what most wars actually look like and that they're messier and that it's probably going to end up at some negotiating table. And they're going to be arguing over pieces of territory um, and exchanging pieces of territory and where the lines are going to be drawn. That could be in a month, in a year or more. Uh, But we have to figure out funding in the meantime here. And that's going to be a pretty ugly debate. It's looking like, as uh, we hear from all sides, I won't even say both, because I think there are some folks kind of caught in the middle on this from the not another dollar to, you know, as long as it takes Mm -hmm. on the other side with Joe Biden. Uh, If there is not a sense, though, that victory is at hand or even possible, how long can the administration keep this going? Yes, and I think this actually weighs very heavily on the Ukrainians as well, because they're aware of this dynamic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think you, what you will start to see, you know, if we don't see more progress with this counteroffensive, is over the next year, more talk about what a um, settlement might look like and more pressure perhaps on the Ukrainians, not just coming from the Americans, but also from Western European allies as well, about really starting to think seriously about negotiations and how to provide some kind of security guarantees to Ukraine. Uh, you know, not necessarily NATO membership, but maybe, you know, the Israeli model is often yeah. talked about um, to sweeten that deal so that they're willing to accept it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the pressure is really going to build. And U.S. domestic politics, I think, is going to be a big factor in that. OK, so if we're talking about potential de-escalation, if you will, in the future, when so much to this point of the allies of the U.S.'s action has been keeping in mind that they don't want to escalate things further, hence the hesitation to even deliver F-16s in the first place or any other list of of weaponry and tanks, for example, that they hesitated on for a really long time before finally uh, doing so. Is there anything else that could be left to give that could be seen as escalatory? Yeah, so I just I'm laughing because I just read something today where, you know, the F-16s are, you know, going to be coming eventually to Ukraine. And I eventually, think I think it's also significant. They're coming from the Netherlands and Denmark. They're not oh, coming right. from the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like one, you know, step removed mm-hmm. from us. Uh, but I read something where someone was saying, well, now they need cruise missiles. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> so um, not sure that's going to happen. Right. Exactly. Um, you know, again, so there's always another. There's always there's another, another yes. layer. Is your yes, point. you've heard Atacums brought up. There's always yep. going to be some other system. The F-16s, if they don't work and you know can't deal with the air defenses, we're going to start hearing about F-35s probably. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but again, it's not a technology problem mm-hmm. or a real lack of capability. It's about trying to master something that's so difficult, mm-hmm. which is how to combine all of that in a way that can overcome defensive fortifications. So we've isolated a strategic problem, also a political one. What happens? If we're heading into a Trump administration, does this administration start to work against the clock? Yes, I mean, I think that, yes, I think that is is, is real. Um, you know, I think that happens with this administration. I think it happens with Europe. Um, and it's the kind of support it's been providing for Ukraine. I'm trying yeah. to figure out maybe rather rapidly how it can shift some of that over. It's going to put a lot of pressure, I think, on the administration and on Zelensky himself. 
uh, to try to perhaps come to a deal. But at the same time, Putin's going to be aware of these factors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he may not want to negotiate under those circumstances. If thinking, he knows Trump's coming. Exactly right. I thought Trump would have that done in 24 hours. That's what he said, that's right? What was, yeah. One day after he takes the Oval Office back, all of this would be over. Yes, so he exactly. Says. So to come back to the idea that no one technology is going to fix this, that this is really about the operations of the Ukrainian military, their ability to fire on all these different cylinders at once, essentially. So is this a training question for Western allies? Is that really what we should be focusing on? I mean, how can they aid in that effort? Well, that's a really great question because it raises, I think, like two different approaches, which is one, should we be training them more in our Western way of war, which is this combined mm-hmm. arms warfare approach, which mm-hmm. is what we did over the winter uh, when there were forces in Ukraine that went to Germany and the United Kingdom. And three months was clearly, you know, maybe not long enough, uh, particularly because they're a way accustomed to an old way of warfare. So it's almost like you have to unlearn a bad habits mm-hmm. and then learn a new way. The other pr- question, though, I think the other approach is, should we actually not be encouraging them to fight a Western way? They have a way of warfare that works for them. And should we be allowing them to use their own tactics? Uh, it's what they know best and and supporting it with capability in that way. Mm-hmm. Wait, you know, you talk about the idea of a settlement. I'm assuming that if that were to take place right now, it would be Crimea and parts of the Donbass that go to Russia. That said, though, I want to get back to something you mentioned earlier. Kiev, the rest of the country, is still standing while flattened in many cases from these yes. horrible attacks. But also NATO, not still intact, but having been expanded in a way that nobody could have seen and likely would not have happened without this war taking place. That actually still sounds like victory for the quote-unquote West. I mean, certainly. I mean, the first thing I would say was a success is uh, the Russian military has been really degraded. Uh, you know, I was never one who really believed Russia posed a very significant military, conventional military threat before mm-hmm. this war um, to NATO. And even more so now, um, mm-hmm. it's going to take them, you know, at least 10 years, if not longer, to recover from this. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the Russian threat is being degraded and unfortunately is being degraded at the cost of Ukrainian lives, blood, treasure. Yeah. So I guess it was probably initially, as you were talking about, you know, at the beginning of this war, we all thought. Kiev was going to fall eminently yeah, very shortly to be four days and right? it may have been a matter of not just underestimating the Ukrainian forces but also overestimating the Russian ones yes the combination and you know one of the things about the fact the Russians are degraded is that it makes it a much more manageable problem for our NATO allies our European NATO allies to step up and take sure. more responsibility for their defense and security mm. um, that they don't necessarily need you know as much direct American support in mm-hmm. Europe, which would allow us to shift resources, attention to the Indo-Pacific, mm-hmm. where we're more concerned about the China threat. Great conversation, Kelly. I'm delighted that you come in to talk to us. Uh, with all of that said, let's say they finally get the F-16 six months down the road. Post-settlement, is it easier for Ukraine to defend itself with an air force that has F-16s? Is that a long-term gain? Well, I would just say, first of all, I actually don't think it will be six months. I know Ukraine is saying that. I just um, I think it's going to be at least a year. All right. Uh, Just based on some things that General Hecker said. And uh, some pretty tough fighter jets, though, when the time comes, maybe they will be useful for creating a new Ukrainian Air Force. Kelly Grieco, senior fellow at the Stimson Center. Great to have you with us. I'm Joe Matthew with Kaylee Lines. This is Bloomberg. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk to Joel Rosenblatt about the recovery a bit here, because, look, the the, the number of uninsured people, <clears throat> the number of homeowners who have nothing, it's just unclear how exactly this is going to play out for them. The federal government may be offering help, but so far, $700 checks are uh, a bit short of what people are going to need. So there's a question about this strategy that actually uh, pushed uh, PG&E stock down uh, and Hawaiian Electric stock was down like 58% at the end of last week on the strategy that property owners may use here, a legal shortcut that was used by fire victims in California to secure compensation. And Joel is writing about this. Joel Rosenblatt is uh, Bloomberg's legal reporter and with us now on sound on joel it's great to have you can you describe how this strategy works uh sure the strategy is uh known as inverse condemnation which is kind of a, a complicated term that's actually rooted in a rather uh basic and simple principle uh, of eminent domain which is maybe more familiar to to everybody listening yeah which is the power of the of the government to take private property for for public in infrastructure and in return, compensate the owner. Uh, another expression for that is the property being condemned. And inverse condemnation is kind of is the inverse of that. It's property owners suing a government agency to recover damages for for uh, to property that was accidental, usually. But Joel, do, does it first need to be proved that it was Hawaiian electric equipment that contributed? To these fires, I just wonder, you know, if that's kind of step one that needs to be established first, or they can pursue this strategy even in absence of that. Well, great question because that's the, the great advantage of inverse condemnation is that you don't you don't have to uh, prove 
that uh, the company was negligent at all. You you do have to prove you do have to show that that the company's um, equipment was the source of of the fire. But that's that's in in many cases, in a surprisingly number of cases, not that difficult to show. What's more difficult to show is that there was a there was negligence that the company was actually negligent. That's a that's a, a legal fight that can take years. And inverse condemnation sidesteps that fight. You don't have to prove that that the company was negligent, just that the company's uh, equipment was the source of, of the fire. This uh, ended in a thirteen point five billion dollar settlement in California in twenty twenty. Joel, do we know? Uh, how long residents have uh, to make this plan or to to decide which course to take? Well, it's it's really it's really you don't have to. It's not one or the other. So so the lawsuits that have been filed against Hawaiian Electric allege a number of different counts, a number of different claims. Not all of them are pursuing inverse condemnation. So mm-hmm. uh, even ones that are pursuing wrongful death or or other claims of of negligence have some have added uh, inverse condemnation and others have not. There's not a there's not a history of inverse condemnation in Hawaii in the wildfire context at all. So Hawaiian courts are going to have to consider, uh, you know, consider that claim. And I think it's likely that they're going to look to California for for what's happened here in making those decisions. Yeah. I wonder how in factoring into an ultimate decision, though, it would be taken into account that this is the main utility for Hawaii. It provides power to, I believe, 95% of the state's population. Theoretically, if they were to be pursued for billions of dollars uh, in in potential liabilities, it could mean its entire existence is in question. Would that be allowed to happen, given its importance as a utility? Well, well, it, that's a great question, and we're just going to see what happens there. This, the same, the same was true of PG&E. I mean, PG&E, this this utility, Hawaiian Electric, is just teeny compared to uh, PG&E in, in in California. But in California, the damages were were just unbelievable, right? I don't know, you know, if everybody mm-hmm. remembers the the fire in Paradise that killed more than eighty five people, and many other fires. I mean, the the damage was just overwhelming. The company, the claims together, not just the inverse condemnation claims, but all the claims together pushed PG&E into bankruptcy. And then it was, you know, restructured. And and um, the, the victims, the fire victims, were eventually paid out in the mm-hmm. settlement. So I think the same thing could happen here. The scale is just different. Joel Rosenblatt. Thank you, Joel. Uh, find the story on the terminal. Maui Fire Lawyers, I tactic that got Californians $13.5 billion. Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.